We're always very wary of the Peter Vole effect, so we check our microphones. If you want to find out the story of Peter Vole, ask Peter <laughs> at morning tea time. Uh, we're to speak on Romans 8 and getting in shape. And our section is verses 1 to 17, and um, we're talking about an athletic inner life. And it's very appropriate that uh, Ben and I should share this talk on uh, an athletic event because we, in fact, uh, some years ago went to Western Australia for schoolies week and we shared in an athletic event there, which I think made a, at least it made a very deep impression on me. Well, and uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, we want to explain to you what happened so, so you can sort of get the full picture. But um, Ben, you want to explain what, what we were doing there? Well, we were running a leadership camp for a year nine group from a school and uh, one of the activity afternoons that we had was the idea of trying to help build trust and uh, sort of a genius idea that I'd seen when I was training as a PE teacher was the idea of getting young kids to sort of close their eyes and run really hard towards a brick wall. But they have to trust the group who are standing at the wall to say stop before they're sort of going to hit the wall. Mm. So sort of just running blind and completely trusting a group. Because when you hear about hitting the wall mm. in a marathon, it's about 20 kilometres, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, but I hit the wall at 20 metres. Well, that's right, at about 20 metres. Well, some of the kids had had a go and it was, it was going really well. One girl was struggling with the idea of trusting a group and... Um, We'd made it very clear there was a number of calls that you had to follow through with. You, you couldn't start running till the whole group had done this particular thing just to make sure we were safe. Mm. I think somewhere in there, Paul, you decided to walk over and... Well, it depends how you look at it, Ben. I mean, there's two different perspectives here. Mm. I mean, how did you see it? Well, well I just saw the uh, sort of the, the camp father for a camp walking over and then suddenly just running at the wall, full mm. help. Yeah. And everyone was watching. Right. Mm. And well, and well, next thing he ran into the wall. He ran into the wall. Would you follow a person like that or not? Well, <laughs> would you follow someone like that? <laughs> well, uh, not into a wall, maybe <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, see, from my perspective, I'm standing down the other end of the hall with this girl who's quite fearful, and I thought, well, the best thing to get her going is to run with her and encourage her. You see, so I said, look, I'll run alongside you. I'll shut my eyes. And I'd been watching it and I thought, I can do this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pull up short. I'm going to run really hard at that wall and I'm going to absolutely trust the people down that other end. And I'm going to demonstrate to this group trust, you know. So I shut my eyes and I start running hard. I'm thinking, I'm waiting for the call. And I thought, no, I'm not going to pull up. That last, I knew I was getting close, but I wasn't going to pull up. I'm running hard. And well, all, all I they thought, didn't call out. Right? Well, I was just waiting for you to open your eyes and stop. I thought this was a demonstration or something. Okay. Mm. Yeah. But, well, see this... There's two different perspectives about what happened here. I thought it was a great decision. I, I thought that you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I got concussion out of it, I remember. Well, I don't remember that, actually. But, uh, <laughs> if you talk to Mike Shaw from Western Australia, he's still laughing about it three years later. Um, <clears throat> it shows you that you can... I mean, I started off with good intentions, and I, I thought I had gone of thought this whole thing through and I thought it was a great idea and I was doing the right thing by this girl and I was going to really demonstrate to the group what I was doing but there were two quite different perspectives on that particular event. We want to take this uh, section of Romans and we want to try and give you a different perspective in the sense that you can come to the Bible and hear it called the Bible or the New Testament or a sacred text or an epistle from an apostle and uh, it sort of puts certain blinkers on you or a certain way of framing that and you kind of settle in for, okay, it's the Bible. 
um, or God's word even, which is fairly daunting. But And they're all true, but sometimes it can also mask uh, what this actual document is. So we want you to listen to it as, as it was, as a letter. And, and Ben and I are going to pay, play a role each. And he's going to play the role of one of the people. We're going to play the roles of two people mentioned that Paul's actually talking to, a group. He's not writing to... Uh, the, the church worldwide. He's writing to a particular group of people that he loves and he talks about them in Romans 16. And uh, I'm going to play the role of a Roman, a guy called Urbanus who's mentioned there. So I'm, I've got the Roman sort of silk going there. And uh, Ben's going to play the role of Aquila who's a Jewish convert. So I'm a Roman convert. He's a Jewish convert. And we're, here we are, we're in this cosmopolitan city, uh, the centre of the known world at the time, very powerful, very religious in one way, and uh, they received a letter from Paul, who's a missionary leader, and we want you to listen to it that way. So it's a letter first, Ben. Mm. Well, it is, and uh, if you think about the context of the letter, Jesus has uh, died and resurrected, and the Spirit's been poured out on this, this new community of people, and it's really only a little more than 20 years that Paul's writing this letter. So there's, there's this vibrancy in the air about this thing that, that's happened. And um, when we think about Paul, uh, probably growing up, I, the, the word St. Paul would come to mind first of all. And I, I would have the impression of Paul, the great theologian. And I'm not dismissing him as a great theologian, but the idea that somehow he was sort of in an ivory tower pouring over texts and hmm. writing as the sole thing of his life was a misrepresentation. I, I think of Paul probably orally talking about his dreams for what would happen in Rome and probably someone scribing for him. You know, at certain times he would actually sort of sign his name at the end just to add emphasis. Mm. That this really is the heart of what he's saying. That's a personal document. It's a personal document. Mm. Um, he's most likely in Corinth at this stage and he's, he's writing to Rome. And uh, Rome's had a bit of a history in about um, uh, 49 AD. Claudius, the emperor, had sort of got sick of the, the turmoil that was happening in Rome and uh, he decided to get rid of them, the Jews and the Christians. He didn't probably at this stage really know what, who they were, but there was a problem. And so they, they were sort of told to leave Suetonius writes because the Jewish people were continually causing disorders, the catalyst being Crestus, who we think may well be representing Christ or Christians. He expelled them from Rome. At this stage, Paul also has another journey in mind. He's, he's, writing, he's wanting to write to Rome because it's, it's an important place to write. He's about to go to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is, I suppose, the mother church. It's um, the place where this has all sort of come out of, but it's a poor church. And Paul is in the process of collecting up money from all the various churches to take it to Jerusalem. And Gentile church. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And you imagine the Gentiles sort of having to fund the, the mother church. Yeah. And in, maybe in two ways this is important. For one, I imagine that for Paul he was hoping that these younger churches would get a sense of the fact that we all need to contribute to this mm. effort for it to happen. Mm. And uh, hopefully to sort of expand their, their hospitality. So probably nothing like that had ever happened in, in history before, really. No. Like, yeah, it's an amazing new idea. Mm. And, and maybe for the Jewish church to receive something yeah. from the Romans. Those, those Romans. Or Greeks yeah, those or whatever. Greeks, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yep. You'll... Well, the, the, the other part of this letter to sort of be mindful of is that Paul's a missionary and he's writing this letter in the missionary context. Mm. And I think that for Paul, he's seeing Rome as the next major launching pad for a, a whole sort of new mission into maybe right across to Spain. So it's a strategy move. That's right. 
Paul the great strategist and and in this letter he he's writing to statistically if we think about the numbers in the capital of Rome maybe at this stage in history there was a million people in Rome yep. a huge population group in the ancient yeah. world maybe there was only a hundred Christians at this stage who had gone back into Rome maybe a scattered number of houses um, of people meeting and so mm. it, it's it's a sort of maybe it's a, a very important letter mm. for what will happen with this mm. group of young so they're a little tiny group inside a massive great piece of apparatus. Well, from a Roman point of view, I'm going to play the part of Urbanus. Uh, he's mentioned there. We don't know a lot about him, but being a Roman, he would have grown up with the impression, well, Rome was the centre of the world, um, and it was there. It was a fixed entity. It wasn't going to move. Um, there's been trouble in the last 50 years, civil wars after the, the death of Julius Caesar. Um, Augustus reigned up till... Uh, AD 14, then to Tiberius sort of consolidated things. Caligula was a disaster, and Claudius was sort of weak. Nero's been greeted. He's the, he's the emperor at this point in time, optimistic. Uh, they were optimistic about him, but there were signs that things weren't going to go all that well, and things are declining. So the empire stretches right around the Mediterranean, uh, Rome city right in the centre in, in, in a pool of luxury, um, influence and power. Uh, and it possesses a lot of high ideals. I mean, they saw themselves initially as a democracy who was going to bring freedom. They had goddesses to liberty and justice, and they prided themselves on Pax Romana, the peace that Rome had brought to the world. Um, they had a lot of gods, including Caesar himself, um, and Julius had actually been divinised. So any emperor after that, in a sense, was if you asked a Roman who's the son of God, they'd say, Caesar. Um, because he possessed more power than anybody else. He had a standing army of 500,000 men. Um, now, at the end of Romans, this letter, we find um, there, there are about 13 out of the 26 names uh, we, we can trace to Caesar's household, similar names to people in Caesar's household. And Paul mentions in another letter in Philippians that uh, there were Christians in the very royal family, um, even Herod's family, who was living in Rome, one of the Herods was living there. So picture the group of people now who are sitting listening to this letter, some from the, the Jewish community, 100,000 Jews living in Rome, a whole cross-section of uh, Romans sitting listening to this letter, and here we are, a Jew and a Roman, and how do we hear this letter? How do you hear this letter? Try to pretend you're part of that group, and you're hearing this letter for the first time. So here's how it sounds. This is from the message. And we'll read a bit each. So we're reading the letter to each other. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. Well, the law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of deep healing of it. And now that the law code asked, now what the law code asked for, but we could never deliver is accomplished, as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. 
those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but they never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with the self in these matters is a dead end. That attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, can you, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him in, he, in, uh, sorry, welcome him in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. So, don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. Well, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, What's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. He... We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what we sorry, and we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through good times with him. So Paul's trying to get across to us uh, Aquila, to you and I, a Roman and a Jew. He's challenging our worldviews here, I think. I, I feel challenged from a, from a Roman perspective when I read this. He's talking about something absolutely fresh and new, a whole new way of seeing things from the inside out. But maybe I hear it differently to the way you hear it. How do you hear it? Well, you know, uh, Urbanus, I, um, Aquila, when I was, I was in Rome and I was in that first sort of wave of people who were thrown out and... Um, my wife is well known, Priscilla, and some people know her because of, of our relationship but as, as a married couple, but she's quite famous from a noble family. And um, um, somehow God did something about those barriers between us, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to share in a partnership. But we, we moved from Rome and, and we ended up in Corinth, and it's there that we met Paul. And uh, we're tent makers, and we met with Paul, and we, we shared a house together, and it's out of our homes that we ran our business. and people would come in and we were able to see people's lives transformed as they heard about the Messiah and it was an exciting adventure to be part of. So that's a lot different to the synagogue type thing you've been doing before. Well, very different. And, um, and to think that God's spirit was sort of working uh, in us as Jews but seeing it happen amongst all the nations through Gentiles, mm. Romans, and mm. it's quite exciting. But we, 
as I think of this, this letter from Paul, my first thought is um, my heart goes back to the whole history we have as a Jewish people of slavery. We've, um, back in Egypt was our defining moment where we were in slavery. We cried out to, to God for deliverance. It was a long time ago. Well, it was a long time ago. But you have to realise for us Jewish people, our story is essential to us. It, it's, it's, it's who we are. And uh, our story of slavery and being delivered and put into this into this new land had this, this, this experience of being in the wilderness. And it's, it's there in the wilderness that we receive this law, this, we call it the Torah. It was, it was a gift from, from God, a, a gift for us to be set apart from all the rest of the world and a blueprint for how we could really live as God would want us to be. That's essential to who we are. But this experience of slavery uh, was a constant struggle. We would return back to slavery because we, we, would, we would walk away from what God would want. Um, and we would trust other gods, their way of a blueprint for what life should be. Uh, we would repent and we would have invasions. So our history goes right back to the ancient Assyrians and Babylon, to Persia, the Greeks, and with the Romans, where we are now, feeling continually disenfranchised. Somewhere in there in the exile, we as a people decided that we would, we would commit ourselves to being people of the book, this Torah, that... Wherever we went, we could take, take it with us and we could be God's people wherever we would go. And uh, one of the other things that's marked us out as a people is that we've separated ourselves and we will, ne- we will not bow down. To well, yeah, we know that. Well, that's right. Um, I mean, you're the only group in the whole Roman Empire who don't have to worship Caesar. And that's pretty real. <laughs> we've extended a pretty big privilege to you. Everybody else has to do it, but you don't. No, and we refuse to. Hmm. Stubborn lot. <laughs> well, I reckon the time's going to come, Aquila, when Rome's going to come down on Israel pretty heavily. Mm. It's coming pretty soon. I mean, you have been so resistant in the days of Pilate, mm. the zealots who fought so hard against our Roman legions. You just don't know how good you've got it. Like, mm. I mean, the Roman Empire has given you peace Romana. Like, we've given you an opportunity to grow up inside a wonderful empire We've built roads, we've bought a language, we've got an economic system. It's a blessing. Okay, we've got slaves, but that what's new? Every, every system had slaves. Our legions patrol the borders, we protect you from the barbarians. We've Romanised the world, okay, we've used force, but then there are blessings. And, you know, it's pretty difficult for a Roman. When I hear this talk about slavery and freedom, I mean, we're used to being in charge and the slaves are used to doing what we tell them so when I hear Paul talking about slavery I hear one thing but then in my heart I think Paul's talking about a different kind of slavery here it seems to me that he's saying life in Christ like a strong wind has magnificently cleared the air freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death there's a different kind of slavery he's talking about he is and uh, he's fought very hard to challenge those who would want to bring um, people back to following the Messiah, but going back to this legalism. In other words, wanting to keep this Torah, this law, as what defines them as being God's people, the badge of their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, well, you might have heard of the various groups that are sort of part of Israel's makeup, and there's various groups, the scribes, the Essenes, the, the Pharisees, who all have a desire to, to truly be God's people, and that when, when in their minds the Messiah will return and that he will vindicate them because of the way that they have been true to the Torah, to the law. Mm. 
But for many of them, this has turned into their interpretation of a little part of the Torah that they want to keep. Mm. And in doing so, the law has become a bondage for so many people. There's religiosity, um, pride, a performance, ticking boxes that the Messiah spoke against and spoke against. Mm. He's talking about the slavery that runs much deeper, um, even deeper than just being under the occupation of another nation. Well, we've known that because we've been... So under so many different nations. We know there's a, a freedom that we've been yearning for that runs deeper than just that. Hmm. Well, you know, pride is a good word. I mean, you might think you're slaves, but you don't live like, like you, you're very proud. You know, like we feel <laughs> shut out of your religion. You won't let us really come into the centre of your worship in your synagogues. <laughs> um, we don't really understand how you work. And you seem to despise us, even though we're the masters. And um, so when I heard the story of... Uh, of Jesus uh, and what Paul says earlier in this letter when he talked there about the law of conscience I think in my heart of hearts even as a Roman I knew there were things we were doing the word right I think we knew in our heart of hearts even though we were in we had the iron fist uh, we were we were we were in bondage too uh, we, were, we were under control of something else and you know it's a funny thing you can yearn for freedom and you can get drunk with power and I think Rome's been drunk with power for a long time but Alcoholism can be a terrible slavery too. And uh, when I heard that Jesus could set us free, when I heard that this God had become one of us, when I heard that we could shed all those old bondages and, and those kind of shackles that kind of keep us tied down, um, I wanted to yield to that. I wanted that kind of freedom. So when I think about it though, Aquila, your prideful religion and our efficient military brutality <coughs> destroyed Jesus or tried to. Mm. Such a wonderful person. Uh, but somehow both our systems got it wrong. Mm. Like we oh, viewed him as a political threat. You saw him as a... We saw him getting in the way of our religious political system as well. Yep. Yep. Threatening all that had been set up there for our leaders' security. Yeah, but how amazing is it that he took a cross, like what we designed as a weapon of mass destruction to terrify people. Mm. I mean, he's turned it into a symbol of, of hope. I mean, that is amazing that he would die, somehow break the shackles by dying for us. Um, that is amazing. That is something absolutely fresh and new. This is a new way of thinking. And for me as a Roman, I've got to sort of recalibrate my whole worldview. Mm. That's right. And we, we think of this, uh, this, this new hope that the Messiah took on all of the the sin of the world on him, but was resurrected to a new life. And we were, I was never expecting this to happen with the Messiah, not in the way that it's happened. And uh, for us, we, I heard reports when I was in Rome of what was going on in Jerusalem. And the, the spirit coming upon Jesus' followers and mm. people speaking in tongues from all the different languages of the world. That's and that it, strong wind he's talking about. That's in the right. Radio. The spirit of life in like a strong wind is magnificently right. clear there. Yeah, that's, that's right. The invasion of, of God's spirit into this world and to realise that the, therefore God's spirit is for all the nations of the earth. Mm. It's not just exclusively, exclusively for us, but it's taking us a while to sort of get used to that. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you know when I see it most vividly, Ben? Um, not Ben, Ben, Ben Aquila. That's right. <laughs> ben Aquila, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, I see when, you know, our little home group, when we meet to, to break bread, to pray, to hear the apostles' teaching, um, to work out what we're going to do next. It's a beautiful, it's an amazing thing. In a Roman household, 
it's very there's very separated you know like the mm. the family live here the slaves live there uh, it's very distinct and they don't sort of really cross into one another's part of the world but to see a household owner like a, a the patron, the, the patriarch, maybe a senator sitting down with a slave mm. to break bread and to treat him as an equal in a Roman's mind, that is amazing. That is just unheard of. Or to see a Jew sitting there with a Roman, the Jew treat us as equal, uh, even though, you know, it, it's just amazing. And to me, that, that's a symbol of the love that Christ has talked about. Uh, he tried to, it's so, so full of it in his stories that we hear about. And to see it actually take place in our homes. That really moves me. I think this wind of the spirit that Paul's talking about, this ever-present God who's raised Jesus from the dead, he really does change us from the inside out. He's changing our whole worldview. He's changing the Roman system. This is going to change the world if it keeps going. Well, it's, it's working on our prejudices as a group of people. And, and we think, we heard about what Jesus was doing, how so many people in Israel were infuriated with him because he was deliberately spending time with people who were outside. They didn't keep the the Torah, the law, the way that others felt that, that they should. He spent time with Samaritans. He, he spent time with women and sick people who were viewed in our culture that somehow they were cursed by God because of their sin and Jesus would touch them and spend time with them. He seemed to talk about the Romans, some having more faith than people in Israel yeah. itself. How could this be? Um, all these traditions we had to rethink through again and Jesus did all this. And what's incredible is that to think of us that the same spirit of Jesus that mm. walked in Israel amongst mm. us now lives among us. Yeah. And what yeah. could he do amongst us? Yeah. So different from the gods of Rome because our gods were just like us. I mean, they were at war, they were having sex with one another, they were mixed up in all sorts of messes. Mm. Um, there really wasn't a lot of hope. I mean, the Epicureans told us we should eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, so just party. Uh, the Stoics said, grit your teeth, march sternly forward. Uh, but there really wasn't a lot of hope. But suddenly, mm. I can see it in you and I can see it in the people that meet together around mm. these teachings around Jesus. And I know that his spirit has changed us. Uh, mm. If this keeps going as it spreads, it's going to really radically change the whole world. You know, the other thing that grabbed me, Aquila, was the thought you know, in the Roman system, this idea where Paul talks here at that last bit there about mm. this resurrection life you've received is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like what next? Papa. Mm. God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. Now, we're not talking about just being slaves, being set free as slaves. We're actually being talk He's talking here about we actually become members of the family. I mean, in a Roman household, that... It's almost impossible for a slave to become a son in the family, to be, to be elevated to a place of privilege. But it can happen. And I think, I don't know, I know Paul grew up in a Roman system, and I'm sure he understood this, but mm. what happens, I don't know whether you know this, but um, mm. there's an adoption system. If a, if a son wants to be moved from one family to another, if a father, one father wants to adopt a son from another family, he can do it. It's a legal process. Mm. He goes to court, and they sort of weigh up twice. They weigh up some copper in the scales, and he puts a price forward, and twice it's rejected. The third time he puts it up, it's, it's not rejected. Then he goes to the magistrate and says, well, I would like to adopt this man. I'd like to adopt him into my family as my son, and it's done. So literally, he becomes the son in that family, and a number of things happen. He loses all the rights he had in his old family and all the connections, and he literally becomes the son in that new family. 
Um, he's an heir to that father's estate. He loses all the rights in the other one, but he gains all the rights in this one. Even if another son is born, he's still the son in that family. He's treated as the son. And so all his old debts are wiped out, mm. all his old connections, and he's got a whole fresh start, a whole new way of living, a whole uh, new culture that he lives in, a family culture. So in, in law, literally, he has, he's, has an, he's been adopted by a new father and he's the father of that son and that son treats him as his father. And mm. when I think about that, and I, I don't know whether that's what Paul's saying here, but it seems to me that he's saying, wow, look at this. You know, you've been actually, you weren't just slaves. You don't need to live like slaves anymore. You can actually live like sons in this household. You are actually God's son and all that he has is yours. Um, and, and the old thing, the old family connection's gone and you're in a whole new world. You're in a whole new... And when I think about that, I think, what a huge honour is that. That's amazing. Well, you know, this, this idea of being a child of, of God, we, we as, a, as a nation have been trained from a very young age to know that, that God is the father of us as a, as a people. He's the one who's well, we saved us. We never knew that. No. And, I, and, I, I, and for us to think that we, we, we could know God that deeply, that he would be a father. We, as a young child, I was always trained to say, Abba, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit every night before I went to bed. And we were told that uh, even in our most desperate times when we had wandered away, there was a time in our nation when we, we really had complete, completely forgotten God and uh, we were trampled. And one of our prophets spoke on our behalf as a nation and he said, Still, God, you are our Father. We're the clay, you're the potter. All of us are what you have made us. Don't be too angry with us, O oh God. Don't keep a permanent account of our wrongdoing. Keep in mind, please, we are your people, all of us. Hmm. And God replied, So I'll preserve those in Israel who obey me. I won't destroy the whole nation. I'll bring out my two children from Jacob. Hmm. But many of my fellow, fellow Jewish brothers, they don't see themselves as God's children because of being born into they just see their sorry they see their inheritance just because they're born into this family mm. just because they're Jewish that they receive it but they're not living as free sons of the father they're living as slaves to the sin of pride a slave in your thinking mm. even though you're a slave you can still be living as if you're a slave yeah. mm. okay that's right and so for us when Jesus came we saw for the first time a true son who obeyed the father his whole life yeah, he showed us what it would be. Yeah, he loved to please his father. Mm. Yep. That's amazing. So what Paul's saying, this whole attitude and adventure and expectancy and greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? That is amazing. What, what, that's how I feel. I think, if, what am I going to do with this? If, if the father has adopted me into his family and he's given me all these amazing privileges, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to sit on it? Am I going to kick back and say, well, you know, I'm going to squander it, I'm going to spend it, I'm going to just be mm. lazy with it? If you step into an inheritance, if you've been a slave and suddenly you find yourself a son, what are you going to do? You're going to say, what an opportunity, mm. not just for myself, but what can I give back to this family? What, mm. How can I honour this father who's given me such a privilege? Why wouldn't mm. I want to give him the very best? Why wouldn't I knock on his door every morning and say, what can I do? Mm. How, can I, how can I serve you? How can I make this family greater than it is? That would be the way I'd want to see it. Mm. Well, we think back to Jesus' words. It seemed that he was most annoyed with the way that we wasted what we were given. Talked over and over again of being stewards who were not faithful with what they were being given. They, they squandered it or they got themselves caught up with the squabbling over petty issues when God had been so generous the whole time. Mm. Why couldn't they see it when mm. the Messiah turned up? Mm. Why weren't they seeing that the Father and the Son had arrived? Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. Fantastic. 
Well, we're going to step out of the roles now. We're just going to talk as ourselves for a moment just to finish. Um, here we are in 21st century Australia. Um, Rome's gone. Lots of other empires have come and gone. Uh, we're living in a post-modern world, even a post-Christendom world. We're in a global village. We're surrendered to the World Wide Web. You've all got it in your pocket there, probably. You can contact anybody anywhere in the world in an instant. You can receive a volume of information that would probably blow the mind of most of the intellectual world of the last 2,000 years. Um, you have exponential power growing, um, something that would dwarf Rome and make it look like a backyard outfit. And yet here we are in the church in Australia, it's shrinking. Now, if Paul was writing to us now, what do you think he would say? What would he say to us about preparing our inner world for the challenges we meet, for Urbanus and for Aquila. They were facing all the challenges of a powerful Roman Empire or a, a Jewish system that had sort of taken such strong control of their minds. How are they going to break out of that and how are they going to see the world a new way? If Paul was writing this letter again, what would he say to us? What do you think, Ben? Hmm. What would he say to you? My, my thought, I suppose, as I responded to this, was there's echoes in my heart of uh, wanting, as Paul says, to serve God with all my heart and all my mind. Um, but often I find myself retreating back to something that's less worthy. I think I just become self-absorbed. And uh, there's a whole lot of voices in the culture that I'm a part of that are screaming out to be absorbed with yourself, to retreat back to something that's less worthy than what God has in store for us. And uh, I think some of those fo the, the false voices in our culture, ones that I often tune into and hear and they... They become part of my life as cynicism um, or pride, uh, the sort of whatever attitude that I can adopt. There's something in me, the real danger is when I, I sort of hear those voices in whatever part of sort of the media it is, but I start making agreements in my own heart with those voices or I feed them. And I think that kills within me this simplicity just to trust with the anticipation that God is doing something and that I'm a part of it. So I think... For us to anticipate that God is doing something. Paul had this amazing optimism. You sort of think about the odds, looking at Rome, a million people and a system that looked like it couldn't be broken, a small group, and he was so optimistic about what the gospel would do, what Jesus would do in a group of people. I think um, thinking about the idea of not retreating. Um, went to uni mission. Um, we, each year at Swan Hill, we, we go down to the University of Melbourne and we um, we spend a week with another Christian group on the campus and we do a bit of walking around talking with people and this year it was interesting because they had the, the Worldwide Atheist Convention at the University of Melbourne. So they had the bigwigs there and um, the first morning we were walking around the campus and at the start of the morning we would just get chalk and we would sort of just chalk the event that was going on, a sort of a talk that, that you could come to and then we'd go off and we'd split into teams and do some surveys and look to get into conversations. I remember sort of as you're preparing yourself for a week of something that's uh, it's quite challenging, you sort of can't simply retreat and you want to engage. Um, I think it might have been Ian Johansson asked me just to pray for our group as we went chalking and I sort of said a prayer, but it was one of those prayers that if I was listening on to myself, I thought, gee, that was weak and pathetic, come on. Maybe, God, it would be great if so we're chalking if someone came just to be ready for, you know. And uh, as, as I, I think it was Mike Fong was with me and we were walking to do our chalking and I was sort of internally processing things and I sensed God's spirit saying to me, I think you need to change your whole, you're retreating. 
and I, I said it at a different prayer. I said, actually, God, I don't want just the opportunity, maybe if someone comes, would you send someone to us while we're talking that we could talk about something? And, uh, and I'd forgotten that prayer, and sort of third time into a chalking, a guy walked up behind us and he said, he looked at what we'd written something about atheism. I can't remember what it was now. And he said, did you watch that program last night with Richard Dawkins on Q&A? I'm really interested in what you Christians think about that. So we got into this discussion and the sort of the whole momentum of the week for me changed because I was anticipating that God was at work and I wanted to join in. Mm. Um, last year I had a conversation and, uh, with Peter Volkowski and he was sort of challenging me and also challenging me to challenge other people to think about that experience on the Emmaus Road when the resurrected Jesus was walking along and met two people. And after he walked with them and he opened up the scriptures to them and he left, they said, Didn't, weren't our hearts on fire when we talked with him? I think for myself the challenge was to pray, I don't want to go through another year where that doesn't happen, where I don't get the experience of, of somehow having my heart burn within me as I talk with another person and seeing that their heart burns as well and there's been... Uh, times this year is, is my role in town as a, a youth counsellor where I've sort of stepped into the world of young men who have lots of reasons to be angry and sort of become self-absorbed, far more than I do, mm. but who are, who are still appealing and saying, what is there? Is there hope? And, and being able to talk to them at some level on that. Mm. I, uh, I read a quote as I was preparing for this and um, maybe it's this challenge of being, of anticipating and expecting that God has a greater purpose for us than simply just getting caught in the old law of sin and death and staying there. Um, George Bernard Shaw said, I, uh, he was a, a playwright, he, I don't think he was a follower of Jesus in any way, he, he sort of, I think, just stuck to the natural world, but he saw the social injustice in England in the 1800s, he wanted to work to do something about it, and his plays were often a comment about what was happening in society. He said that this is true joy in life, the being used for a purpose, recognised by yourself as a mighty one, being thoroughly worn out before you're thrown on the scrap heap, being a force of nature instead of a feverish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I was particularly struck by that last line, that uh, how many times in a day when I look at myself is... The, am I seeing myself as a force in God's hands mm. to transform mm. uh, this world or do I see myself as just a feverish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making me happy? <laughs> and how sad if that was the aroma of my life, if that's really what the smell of my life was like or if the Christian church was seen that way, mm. that the body of Christ and when people looked on were a group of people who were just complaining that somehow this world would not devote itself to their happiness. Mm. We've been given this resurrection life, and as Paul said, this is not a timid, grave-tending life. Yeah, exactly. I think if Paul was writing now, um, he would write with that same passionate commitment that he had. I mean, he was a man who sensed he had a call. He knew that God had given him a commission, and he wasn't going to stop until he finished it. I mean, he finishes in one of his letters saying, I've run the race, like I've, I've run hard at the finish line, like mm. at the brick wall. You know, okay. I mean, maybe I was stupid, but maybe there was a lesson there too. I'd like to just run at it and trust that God's going to meet you at the other end. 
and maybe you do hit a brick wall now and then. Um, but I think mission was the priority of his life, and he would urge us to do the same. I think he'd say that this mission of the kingdom of God is still the largest challenge that anybody can meet, and it's the only thing that will bring out the best in you. The only thing that will bring out the best in you is the challenge of the kingdom of God. Anything less, and you're operating at half pace. Give him what you've got. As a 17-year-old, I was talking to Penny about it last night at the leadership dinner, and I said, you know, as a 17-year-old, a group of us went out to meeting in her home church over there, and we said we wanted to make our life fruitful. Paul said in one of his letters, the grace that God has given me has not proved a barren gift. It's all very well to say, you know, grace is unmerited favour. And if you receive unmerited favour, just like that Roman son or slave being adopted into a household, then you've got, and you've got to meet unmerited favour with unlimited response. You know, you've got to do something with it. You can't just say, well, that's great, that's good for me. What am I going to do with this? Hmm. I remember a story of uh, an athlete, 1956, Olympics, Melbourne. He's sitting in the stands with his family. He'd been a sort of fairly successful schoolboy athlete, watches... Uh, a European athlete win the 5,000 and 10,000 metres. Vladimir Kutz won them in record time and the whole stadium, the whole Melbourne cricket ground, stood uh, to applaud this man home. Brilliant runs, you know. And his uncle turned to him and said, you know, Herb, if I had the talent you had, I'd stop smoking cigarettes and I'd get out there and start training and do something with it. So he did. He got a, a trainer. And in the next four years, he became one of the best runners in the world. Comes to the Rome Olympics and he's there. He's the champion. And he runs in the Rome Olympics and he wins the gold medal. You know, mm. like he's, he's, his uncle said to him, get out of the stands and get into the game. I think Paul would say that to us too. He'd say, stop just sitting there on the grace that God has given you and make something of it. I think he'd say, make disciples. That little group that he was working with there in Corinth as he wrote that letter to that other little group in Rome, he had this vision of, if we keep making disciples, if we push out into the deep, we can take the Roman Empire. It's, it's nothing compared to if Christ rose from the dead, what can possibly stop us, you know? And that's where you meet God. When we stepped out to Burke with Robin and I, went with Laurie and Alvita to start Cornerstone in Burke in 1977, 78, I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we, we didn't have very much resources. Uh, we just gave him what we got. I often talk about that little boy that gave Jesus his lunch. We're still talking about that kid's lunch. You know, five loaves, two fish. He didn't know what he was doing that day, but it's not what you've got, but it's whose hands it's in. And Paul would say the same. Give God what you've got and step out in faith. Find a like-minded group of men and women. That team that he built around him, that he, mm. he took around the world, he'd say, find a team of like-minded men and women, commit yourself to them, and, and get out on the adventure. And I'd like to pause here to thank Laurie and Alvita for the investment they wrote, made in a young, wet-behind-the-ears university student and his girlfriend at the time, <laughs> and they believed in us. They said, come with us on the adventure, and we've never recovered from it. So in this last... <laughs> Uh, Master, where Laurie is going to step down as National Director, I want to pay a personal tribute to you, Laurie, and thank you very, 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 very much for inviting me and Robin into your lives, you and Elvita, and the shared adventure. And I want you men and women, okay, as we older ones step back, you've got to start stepping forward, looking for friends, looking for a team, looking for men and women of like heart, the Barnabases of the world finding the Pauls and saying, come with me, let's start on this adventure. And I think Paul would say to us, don't be intimidated. Rome looks like it's, it's the superpower, it's got the muscle, you know, it's got the law, it's got, it controls 65 million people, it's one little city control the known world. Um, it was amazing, but Paul said, that's nothing. Wait till you see what the kingdom of God can do. 
the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he said here, lives in you. Well, I'm not naturally a bold person. I'm not sort of particularly heroic. But I'm glad that I've stepped out and tried to believe God. My dad taught me when I was young, push your boat out into the deep and trust God. Throw your net on the other side and see what happens. And I think Paul would say to us what he said ended up finishing saying here, spend yourself building a permanent inheritance. Build something permanent. Jesus said, he who tries to save his life will lose it. Lose your life for my sake and the gospel is what he advised us. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what challenges your heart. Um, But if you're trying to save your life, according to Jesus, you're going to lose it. You set yourself to give it away and you'll find it comes back to you. I'm on an adventure right now alongside of Cornerstone. They've given me the opportunity to take this inheritance I think we've received in Australia that we're wasting. We've got a Christian inheritance here that uh, is what really makes Australia what it is. And yet you go to the big history museum in Canberra that's supposed to tell the story of what Australia's about. You'll search high and low to find a mention of Christianity there anywhere. And it seems to me that Australia is at a point, a critical point, as uh, Earl said to us last night, at a crisis, a kairos, where we're forgetting our inheritance. And I'm giving my efforts to try and remind Australia of that inheritance in building a heritage centre in Canberra that can take the stories, the sort of things that you men and women are doing, and put it out there in front of people and say, listen, don't forget there's a great inheritance we've received. To whom much is given, much will be required. A missionary called Jim Elliott, who gave his life in service in Ecuador, wrote this little thing, and I remember Laurie saying this when I first heard him preach. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And the other Elliott, Herb Elliott, when he won that gold medal, (laughs) he was standing on the podium, he heard the national anthem, he saw his parents in the crowd, feeling very proud of his achievement that he got out of the stands and into the stadium. Um, as he was walking away from the ceremony, uh, another athlete pushed his way through the crowd, a, a blonde athlete, blue tracksuit from Europe. It was the same bloke he'd watched run in the stadium that had inspired him. And he walked up and he said, Herb, Herb Elliott, that was a great run. Hmm. And I think to myself, what if what Jesus says is true, that one day, come the end of our lives, uh, we're going to meet Jesus himself and he's going to look us in the eye and he's going to say, Ben... That's a great run. I'm really pleased with you. How good would that be? You didn't waste the inheritance you were given. The grace that God has given to me has not proved a barren gift. You men and women here, think what grace God has put into your lives. If God gives you grace, it's unmerited favour, but it needs an unlimited response. I was challenged by reading uh, this from C.S. Lewis, and he talks in Mere Christianity about niceness and uh, wholesome integrated personality, and he says this is an excellent thing, We must try by every medical, educational, economic and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice, just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that if, even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, that we would have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For me, improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, 
but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but but like turning a horse into a winged creature. And I think about this, what we've been given, this opportunity to live as completely new people. Will we have the cry of our hearts that says, what's next, Father? What's in store for us, for me, for us as a community, for wherever you're going to be next year? What's next? But maybe you're not looking like that. Maybe you're living as a slave, though you should be a free son or a free daughter. Maybe you've relapsed back to that old slavish attitude of fear. God's spirit, I believe, is beckoning us as a group of people to remember that, that we are free, that he's anticipating that we'll work with him. Maybe this weekend's a chance for you to commit, to talk with someone if that's been the struggle for you, to talk about it and ask them to pray, what would the Father have for me to respond to this? Maybe the voice of the spirit has been drowned out by other voices. Maybe cynicism has crept in or pride or a sense of apathy in our lives. And you simply want to give that way of living a decent burial and get on with the new life of following the Spirit, then do so. Maybe in saying what's next to the Father, to Papa, to God, is to say, I need to be stepping into something new. And I know that you're requiring me to trust you in a completely whole new set of ways. And I don't know quite know what that looks like. Maybe you're here thinking about the opportunity to be discipled in a training centre. Maybe God wants you to take that step to do something like that. Maybe you're moving into a university for next year and there's a whole opportunity to make this about mission or about just the old life. Maybe you're at a training centre and you're saying, what next, Father, for next year? Is this, what do you have in store? I think we have to have that spirit. So I'm going to give us a chance to do something about that now. Maybe you'd like to take a little bit of time to be quiet and pray and ask God to speak to you and um, with that expectant heart saying, what's next, Father? And I'll close with a prayer in a little while.